Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Utopian Horizons, a podcast about utopias real and imaginary. This episode is about the Black Panther Party, a political party that existed in America between 1966 and 1982. Joining me to talk about them will be Joshua Bloom. He is principal author of a book along with Waldo E. Martin called Black Against Empire, the History and Politics of the Black Panther Party. I do have a bit of a cold, by the way, so I don't know if that's affecting my voice in any substantial way. I think it's a bit better now, so hopefully you can't hear that. But I also did have a cold when I did the interview as well. So I don't know if you'll be able to hear it or if it will bother you. But sorry if so. Before we get on to the interview, I want to say thank you very much to Troy and Martin who've kindly um, subscribed to support me on Patreon. That's very much appreciated. If anybody else out there feels compelled to help support the podcast financially for a, for a few quid my way to help me keep doing this, you can do that at patreon.com slash utopian horizons. Um, is there anyone else I should thank? No, I didn't get any more iTunes reviews despite my continued begging, but hey. Um, or maybe you did give me a review and it didn't get through. I know Apple has some weird thing where they, I don't know how they decide like what's a genuine review and what's not, but more likely I probably just did, didn't get any reviews. Um, so yeah, if you do enjoy this podcast and you could take a moment to give me a rating or a review, uh, as always, that would be appreciated. One more thing before we get on to the interview for this episode. Um, the next episode I will be doing will be the first of the um, Philip K. Dick kind of mini-series I'm going to be doing where I'm working my way through Philip K. Dick's bibliography, starting with Time Out of Joint. It's going to be something of an experiment with me doing doing solo episodes. So that one more than any other. If you have got any like comments or questions or thoughts on Time Out of Joint, then it'd be great if you can send them to me because um, I'll, I'll be recording that one next and I can read them out or address those uh, in the episode. So you can email me utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com or tweet me at utopianhorizons uh, if you've got anything to say on Time Out of Joint. Anyway, so yeah, let's go on to the interview with Joshua. I just want to say the cool quality on this one might not be as good as previous episodes. I haven't edited it yet, so I don't quite know how it's going to turn out. So I think it's going to be okay, but um, sorry if it's it's uh, it's not great. I was just going to say uh, we had a limited amount of time to talk, and I was a bit ambitious with what I tried to cover. I tried to squeeze a bit too much in, so we didn't really get to sort of cover the demise of, of the party and some other aspects in as, as much detail as I would have liked that was my fault for trying to sort of squeeze a, a bit too much in so what I might do which is something I don't normally do is um when I get to the outro I might just talk about a few details that I picked up from reading Joshua's book that we didn't get to talk about during the interview just because I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff there that we we didn't get addressed because we were short for time so I might just um I might just address some of those things at the end to sort of uh redress the balance because i think we talked quite a bit about the beginning of the party and we had to kind of rush a bit at the end so um yeah stick around at the end and i'll I'll try and cover a few things we missed uh, anyway on to my interview with joshua so joining me now is joshua bloom professor at the university of pittsburgh and author of the book uh, along with his 
colleague Waldo E. Martin Jr., Black Against Empire, The History and Politics of the Black Panther Party. And obviously he's come on to talk about the Black Panther Party. So the first thing I wanted to ask you about um, is the birth of the Black Panther Party. Something you do very well in the book is not make it into a biography of the key figures. You make clear that like the Black Panther Party is bigger than sort of individual people. Nevertheless, um, there are a couple of very, a few very important people who um, will probably be mentioning a lot. So could you tell us a bit about um, Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, the, the founders of the party and who they were? Sure, Paul. Uh, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. And yeah, I can talk a little bit about Huey and Bobby. Huey Newton was a really sharp guy who, you know, grew up very working class and poor in the South, came north, a big family, and really was trying to make his way and hadn't had a lot of opportunity or sort of success in school and had had a you know, had, had really looked to his much older brothers who had sort of taken the way of the street and learned from them how to make ends meet and get by. And it, there was a turning point for him somewhere in high school where he um, he really decided uh, that he was going to show that he, he was he was able to to make it work. And his, his middle brother, Melvin, really was very studious and worked with Huey and the real genius that Huey had in there was, uh, you know, came out during this period. He started getting very involved politically and debating, and really put himself to task. So Huey, Huey Newton, I feel like I'm, I'm uh, you know, giving these background details, but it doesn't really give you that much of a sense of of who he was. But he he really is somebody who integrated a very serious, probing intellect with a real knowledge of sort of dynamics on the street just say one of your there's a dissection of a book which I, I really liked that kind of brought those things together where you talked about how this was a guy who could steal or like commit fraud to like pay for college and stuff and then he was capable of like reading law books and defending himself in court and winning so he had those two kind of sides he brought them together and he really understood what it was like to be down and out and, you know, fought a lot as a younger person and, you know, knew how to read the confrontations with the Panthers would later have with police. He really knew how to read the dynamics in the confrontation very sharply. Um, but he also did a lot of the writing and the theorizing that really laid the foundation for this new politics. So he was a very, very unusual combination of these, these kinds of strengths. He was not particularly a good speaker and he was not particularly a good organizer. Mm-hmm. So you know that's interesting because we you know we think of uh, we think of leaders of these kinds of movements as being you know like Dr. King or mm. you know people who are really good at bringing people together and really good orators and he wasn't either actually not especially people did people were impressed by him and followed him but he wasn't he wasn't somebody who was going to attend to the day to day needs of an organization and and really Bobby Steele was really strong in those both those ways he was someone who came out of a you know very working class background had served time in the military had worked he was a bit older also and he had worked in community organizations funded by the city and he was good at taking on projects and seeing them through and making them happen in the early days he spent a lot of time and energy pulling the party's newspaper together and was someone who had a lot of attention to detail and making sure all the pieces lined up and he you know knew everyone and he was you know able to communicate with people and got along with a lot of people 
and was able to sort of make organization happen. So he had those kind of organizational strength. And he also was something of a stand-up comedian. Um, <laughs> so he would, you know, do these performances, doing stand-up comedy, and that that ended up translating into um, being a really good public speaker. And so Bobby Steele ended up doing a lot of the both public speaking and organizational work early in the formation of the Black Panther Party. Okay. So early on in, uh, just as the Black Panther Party was formed, it was kind of birthed as like this self-defense patrols. So can you tell us like what the idea behind that was and what they did? I think we need to, to really understand the politics of the party. We need to step back and think about the broader historical moment, mm-hmm. at least a bit. And, um, you know, you think about the civil rights movement and the great gains of the civil rights movement, and it grew out of a challenge to Jim Crow and formal caste subordination in the United States. So you had this post-Reconstruction Accord in the United States. After after slavery, there was a period of Reconstruction, which moved towards um, racial equality. And then uh, Accord was struck, um, where the federal government basically said it was going to stay out of local racial politics. And the states of the South reimposed a formal, basically, caste subordination, that Black people were treated as less than citizens less than human really mm-hmm. and that and those those inequalities were written right into the law and they were enforced oftentimes by lynching so you know the civil rights movement is what what challenged and ultimately brought an end to Jim Crow as a form of racial organization and a form of explicit formal racism in the United States and the irony is that the civil rights movement really uh, had its heyday and, and won, you know, succeeded in dance, dismantling Jim Crow in the early 60s. There are all kinds of steps that built up to the, the heyday of the civil rights movement. But the, the heyday was very much the early 60s. Mm-hmm. And, and the civil rights movement succeeded. It succeeded tremendously. And, and you know, many people think of that as really the, the most important transformative period in, in U.S. history. It, it changed the way that American society was organized. And that was one through a series of mobilizations that were stridently nonviolent um, and that claimed participation in U.S. citizenship rights. Mm-hmm. So civil rights activists um, were saying, we want, we want to be treated like everybody else. We want to have our fair share of participation in America. We want um, be treated um, equally under the Constitution. And the actions that were taken by the civil rights activists largely consisted in nonviolent civil disobedience in violation of, of Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. So they refused to follow segregation, and um, violated the segregation customs and laws, and used those violations as a source of power to effectively undermine and um, dismantle formal caste subordination in the United States, and they succeeded. So the big irony at the, at the formation of the Panthers and the Black Panther Party is why in that moment when the civil rights movement has been so effective at dismantling Jim Crow um, and uh, eliminating formal caste subordination in the United States and advancing anti-racism and racial justice, why does the center of gravity for black freedom change? Why do so many young black people take up the gun and start talking about revolution? Um, and the Black Panther Party really becomes the center of black freedom struggle for several years in the late 
60s in terms of number of people participating, in terms of influence, in terms of the attention the party received. So, so why does that happen? And um, what you find when you start to look into this is that in that moment of the mid-60s, there were many, many people. Um, it was by no means just Huey and Bobby or their friends and people that they knew or were working with in Oakland and the Bay Area. If you looked at any major city in the country with a significant black population, there were many people who were trying to figure out how do we bring the movement to our conditions? How do we how do we basically make a civil rights movement that's significant for the cities of the North and the West? One of the points you make, you keep making in the book as well is the tactics of the civil rights movement kind of became ineffective precisely because they've been successful. Like you couldn't you can't go and do like a non a non-violent sit-in in a segregated place when segregation technically doesn't exist. Like there's no law for you to to uh, violate. So can you tell us how that that context you you kind of laid out there? Why did that lead to to Huey Newton, Bobby Seale uh, deciding to do this like self-defense patrol? And um, for people who don't know anything about it, can you tell, can you explain to them what what they were doing? Yeah, I mean, so the the um, basically they faced a dilemma. Um, as did many of these other young people across the country that I was mentioning earlier, they faced a dilemma that many of us face today, which is that the practices of the civil rights movement, the things that they thought of when they thought of making a movement from below to change the conditions that they were facing in their neighborhoods and their communities and their cities, when they were trying to change ghettoization, when they were trying to challenge police brutality, Really, a lot of the mobilization of Panthers and Black Power more generally, a lot of it was oriented towards brutality by police against Black people. And civil rights practices didn't work. You couldn't sit in in violation of Jim Crow. There was no formal caste subordination in police brutality. The police said, okay, we're going to beat Black people differently or we're going to treat Black people differently. They just did. And... Um, Similar with poverty, it wasn't like, you know, there was some official policy that black people had to have a higher unemployment rate. It's just like a higher unemployment rate. So where would you sit in? How do you violate the formal caste subordination when there is none? So, so Huey and Bobby face a situation a lot like the situation that we face today, where you think about police brutality today. How do you, how do you sit in against that? How do you march and against that in an effective way that really is a, is a violation of, of police brutality. It, it's hard to imagine how you do that. How do you, how do you sit in today against inequality? We have this vast expanding inequality um, that's only been growing and growing over the last several decades and was really exacerbated with the housing crisis and then the bailouts, the people who created it. So where do you sit in? And that was the question that Bobby and Judy were asking, but they come up with the initial practice that they come up with is to police the police. And they, they worked for a long time on this. So it wasn't something that came out of the air. And it wasn't something that they invented themselves. They really put it together out of a bunch of things that they tried and a bunch of things that other people were trying. And they, 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 they found or they developed this kind of practice. It wasn't something that just came out of the air. It was really created. You can think of it almost like a cultural technology where it's this practice of policing the police and, and what they did was they studied, Huey Newton in particular studied the law, and he found that in California it was actually legal to carry loaded weapons within city limits, 
and he found all the specific regulations on the distance that you had to stand and where you could aim them and special qualifications for if you had a, a record and all these different kinds of technical details that were in the law. And what they did is they would follow at a distance the police. And when there was a confrontation that they felt like was, you know, some kind of violation, someone was being arrested or pushed around, or in some cases, they basically staged a confrontation Mm. and um, created a a condition where there would be a confrontation with police that was highly visible, for example, outside of the community college. They both attended at Merritt College in Oakland. And what they did is they um, called the police to account using the law and yet defending themselves with loaded guns. And so they they framed this as as an act of self-defense. They said the police are brutalizing us. They're not treating us equally. We um, are, this law is not respecting us. It's not our law. We are going to stand up to this brutality. And yet we're going to do it in a, in a way that can't easily be repressed. We're going to do it legally. Yeah. And so they knew the letter of the law better than the police. And so somebody would be, you know, somebody's being pulled over and arrested and the police are maybe um, brutalizing the person a bit and, and the Panthers would pull up. This is in Oakland. The Panthers would pull up and they'd get out of their car with loaded weapons and they'd stand and they'd take their weapons out um, and they'd stand a certain distance from the police as legally required. And they knew the law better than the police did about what they were legally allowed to do and what they were legally not allowed to do. And in a series of confrontations, mostly in um, in the very end of um, 1966 and in, in, in Sioux, um, 1967, they uh, had a whole series of confrontations with the police in which they very often uh, backed the police down. None of these confrontations actually came to shock, neither the Panthers nor the police. And um, in almost all of these confrontations, the police ended up largely backing down, sometimes giving a ticket for some, you know, some extra uh, tangential item like a hanging license plate on the car or something like that. But uh, the Panthers knew the law so well and were able to read the interaction so well that they were able to use the law to uh, back the police down despite customary, brutal, and unaccountable policing. After they were doing this, um, the police obviously didn't like this. And it seemed they were trying to find a way of... They basically wanted to um, change the law to stop them doing what they were doing, which... Uh, led to an act that they tried to pass in Sacramento. Can you tell us about what happened in Sacramento? And is that is that the first event that took them from being just based in Oakland to being known more widely, uh, to being like a national, known nationally? Yeah, so there was a whole, there was a whole series of events that really led from this, you know, the party being more like a, you know, just small local group of friends doing something and really became became a, a, a serious movement. So there was a whole, whole process of building up. Sacramento that you refer to is in May of 1967. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can sort of think of Sacramento as a culmination of that first phase. And there was a whole series of things that happened in that period. Um, I'll just go through very briefly some of the big moments. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Betty Shabazz came to the Bay Area and the Panthers went in armed to the airport and escorted her out. And then there was a whole confrontation with police in front of the Rampart 
magazine office um, with Betty Shabbat there. There were um, a series of these smaller confrontations in Oakland, and then something really changed in Richmond when um, a young man named Denzel Dow was killed by police. And there was no reason for the family. The family didn't really have a way of addressing the killing. And there was a lot of evidence that made it seem like it had not been warranted. The police claimed that um, Denzel Dow had been robbing a store and that he ran away and all these things. But he he had a limp. He couldn't run too far. There had been a series of confrontations between the specific officer and Denzel Dow. It appeared from the forensic evidence like he had been shot and killed with his hands up. And basically, the um, the sheriff, the, the local sheriff who was over the, the officer who um, killed Dow, said, um, you know, tough luck. You know, this, this is, you know, this was warranted and end of story. We're not going to have any kind of further investigation. So this is kind of what you were talking about, right? This is not like, this isn't like a formal thing where formally everyone is equal and the police treat black people the same as they do everyone else. But clearly there's this like informal racism so it's like where like there's nowhere for you to go like there's no law for you to go up against so like they like they had nowhere to go to right that's exactly right the the you know there's no formal law here that black people are treated any different and yet you know this was this was customary there had been a whole number of black people killed by the sheriff's apartment um in richmond it was a small black unincorporated area of north richmond almost all black. It had no political representation, no representation on the sheriff's um, force. And um, so these were, you know, in actuality, Jim Crow-like dynamics. Mm. There was no accountability. You know, black people were killed with impunity. And yet formally, there wasn't, there was nothing formal about that. And there was nowhere you couldn't sit in against this. I mean, what what kind of sit-in are you going to do? The sheriff says this was warranted, end of story. Where do you appeal? There were no legal authorities to appeal to. And more, more so, you make a very important point, there were no movement authorities to appeal to. There was no civil rights organization that could come in and say, yeah, we're going to do a sit-in or we're going to somehow violate Jim Crow because there was no Jim Crow to violate. There, formally, there was, no, there was no segregation. There was no inequality. Yeah, so this really puts the Panthers on a bigger stage because what happened is that the family knew a local black power activist, Mark Comfort, who brought the family in touch with the Black Panthers who had been doing these local patrols. And so the party came to uh, North Richmond and they came with their guns. And so they went and they met with the sheriff with their guns. They went and they started patrolling. There were all these stories about brutality in the black school. The um, administrators and the teachers in the school, the white administrators and teachers against black students. So they started patrolling the school with guns. And then, and so this, you know, you can imagine a, a town that's unincorporated, all black, has been ruled by white. And all of a sudden, you have these young black people, um, mostly men, although there were some women that also carried the guns, even in the earliest days of the party, standing up to the police. And doing it legally and doing it in a way that there isn't any real legal basis to challenge them. And then the Panthers organized a series, a brief series, two or three um, street rallies. And they brought their guns to these rallies. And what happened was really a whole different level than what was happening in Oakland. In Oakland, you'd have these 
confrontations and maybe an audience, people would ask to join the party. But at these street rallies in North Richmond, there was so much frustration in this little unincorporated area of North Richmond um, and so much anger about the killing of Denzel Dow, hundreds of people started turning out and they started bringing their own guns. So you'd have these street corner rallies and just picture it, hundreds of black people rallying on a street corner, bringing their own guns. And when the police came, they would challenge the police. And here they are armed saying, you know, we have a right to bear these arms. Get out of here. You don't have any place here. And really challenging the authority of the police. Uh, so this led to the, the, the thing in Sacramento where was it the Mulford Act, which right. was passed. The which... Mulford Act, exactly. So so what happens is that the, because the Black Panther Party are now using the law to effectively mobilize black people in ways that really are disrupting customary policing and police brutality, and they're creating a source of power through these forms, right? They can't sit in. Marching and claiming for citizenship rights isn't working, but the Panthers are using gun law to make business as usual impossible in a way which really challenges the customary policing and police brutality. So the, the state legislature in Sacramento steps in and um, puts forward a law called the Mulford Act. It's sponsored by Donald Mulford, which changes the law and, and uh, takes away the of the Panthers to use um, guns in and public in this way. Um, so they restrict gun rights. The, the Mulford law is intended to restrict gun rights to prevent this use by the, by the Black Panther Party. Interestingly, the NRA supports the restriction of gun, of gun law in this way to undercut the Black Panther Party, and Ronald Reagan, who was governor at the time, um, supports the Mulford Act. Um, so it's, it's quite, a, yeah... By telling. But what the Panthers do is they say, okay, you know, this is an escalation and we're going to, you know, the Balford Act hasn't passed yet. We still have the right to bear arms. So we're going to take our protest right to the state building in Sacramento. And we're not going to just do some generic kind of protest. We're going to go ahead and bring our guns. So they bring their loaded weapons right into the state house in Sacramento in protest of the Mulford Act. And, and now all of a sudden you have what went from a couple friends uh, just chasing a, a problem that may be familiar to many listeners, um, which is, you know, how do you, how do you challenge, how do you transform the, the status quo? What do you, you know, using what looks like the civil rights movement doesn't work for the challenges that we face today, and it didn't work for the Panthers. How do you challenge that? Just a couple of friends trying to figure that out. They go from some local success in terms of, you know, these local legal confrontations with the police to street rallies in North Richmond to when they go to Sacramento. Now this is national and international news and the Black Panther protests and their platform and the kinds of claims that they're making is on you know, the front page of newspapers around the country and uh, and, uh, around the world. So that that act does end up being passed. So if the the tactics do become outlawed, this is quite a big question, but so once their taxes are outlawed, how do they respond to that? And how do they end up going from being this group that's quite focused on like self-defense and police the police to being like a bigger broader political movement well one of the things that's really important 
understand is that the, um, this early set of practices was not just a set of tactics. So an important part of it was targeting the police and recognizing that a lot of the community's anger uh, focused on the police, even though not exclusively, it was a real point of anger. Part of it was about the tactic of knowing the gun law and being able to confront the police in this legal way mm-hmm. that really tapped into this anger that people had against the police, but did it in a way that, that was both disruptive but also sustainable. It, it was disruptive because it challenged the basic premise of the unequal policing of the black community. Um, it was sustainable because it was illegal. But there was something else to this beside the tactics, which is that there were um, important claims um, that the party was making about what they were doing and why they were doing it. And you can't really understand the significance of the um, police patrols and how that transitioned after the Malford Act without understanding the claims. Um, and the claims were anti-imperialist claims. The party did not say... Um, like the civil rights movement had, we want citizenship rights. We want to be treated as equal citizens. They also didn't say we are black people and we just want to be separate from everybody else and leave us alone. They weren't separatists. Um, They weren't any kind of narrow nationalists and they weren't uh, also claiming for participation citizenship rights. They had a much broader analysis. They said, our struggle is a struggle of the black community for self-determination it's an anti-imperialist struggle. The black community is uh, basically a colony in the mother country is what they call it. The black community is um, subject to imperial rule by the United States of America. And the struggle that we face is the same as black people, is the same as anti-colonial struggles face abroad. It's the same as the Vietnamese, for example, face um, when they are fighting for their own sovereignty against imperialism, first of France and now of the United States. It's the same as the struggle that poor people face when they're fighting for political power. And it's the same as the um, Chicanos face when they're fighting for some kind of political self-determination. It's the same as the struggle that women face when they're fighting for some kind of political power and equality. So they made this very broad analogy and they said, you know, they built on Malcolm X's um, nationalism and they said, you know, yes, there's something distinct to the black community. They built on a long tradition of black anti-colonialism coming from Du Bois um, and others. But they said that, that our struggle is part and parcel of a global struggle against imperialism. And they said this from the start if you look at the statements that they read on the news and they were covered in the papers when they went to Sacramento, they made those analogies explicitly. They said our struggle is the same as the struggle of the Native Americans facing genocide and the conquest of this country. Our struggle is the same as the Vietnamese um, who are fighting for their sovereignty. Our struggle is, is not about just participation in citizenship rights. It's about our own self-determination and it's about a challenge to American imperialism. And so that was the heart of the idea behind the politics. It what it's what made standing up to the police make sense, mm. right? And it's what made um, the police patrols make sense, right? These police are coming in here, and they don't have any real authority or right to be here, beating us and treating us this way. They're part of an imperialist power. It's what drew support 
beyond the confines of the black community because at this moment you have to remember also that this is, you know, and the Panthers were involved in, in some of this. This is a period of the gestation of draft resistance and um, this large anti-war movement. 80% of Democrats in 1968 voted to end the war um, and voted for anti-war candidates and the party pushed through a, a pro-war platform. You know, Johnson stepped on it, but the party still pushed through a pro-war platform and candidate and basically said, you don't have the right to decide what is going to happen on this war. So, you know, the, the, you, we think of 68 and the Democratic Convention in Chicago, and we think of the conflicts in the street. There was a conflict inside the convention as well, and it was along those lines, right? It was, you know, who, who gets to decide what this is? Is it the Democratic voters? Or is the party machine have its own its own um, set of agenda? So you, you have a lot of people at that time who are being told you have to go and fight and die in this war that you voted against and that everybody in the party voted against. But the party didn't listen. There's no electoral recourse, hmm. and so the, the the party by saying we are part and parcel of standing up to imperialism. This was a very rare message at the time, not only among black people, but among, for example, Democrat, um, Democratic voters who felt that they were being told that they were drafted and they had to go and die in this war that they voted against. And so did everybody else. And they had no choice. And this was also resonant internationally with um, people like the North Vietnamese, people like the South Vietnamese um, resistance, people like the Cubans, people like the Algerians people who were trying to stand outside of um, the control by American power um, and standing up to American imperialism. So the Panthers said, we are in part and parcel of that global struggle. And what happened was when the Mulford Act passed and they lost their right to legally patrol the police, they carried that message forward and they took it to a larger scale and they used the, the exposure and the recognition that they had to promote a, a revolutionary anti-imperialist politics along those lines. There's something that comes across really well in the book actually, this that like, they're very, very good at drawing connections with like, other struggles and bringing bringing support to, as you said, they're, they're anything but anti-white. Like they were very, um, very happy aligning with with the white left and would support would support draft resistance. I would support like there's a group a group of people called the, the Seven Latinos that they they would they gave like twenty five thousand dollars or something to them to help. So they were they were very much um, engaged in a bigger movement and bringing people to their cause as well. Something I think is really important as well that comes across is like how like their practical nature of them like as being rooted in communities like always having their offices in like center of the poor areas where people could come to them with their practical problems like if they're going to be evicted or like you mentioned before if they have problems at their schools where their pupils were being mistreated and black panthers would go to the schools and patrol patrol the corridors could you tell us a bit about their people might get focused on like the the gun thing which is obviously a big big part of what they were doing and they still continued to stand up to the police with guns and had many shootouts with police over the years but they also had these uh community programs that they they did with like uh, breakfast for children being the most famous one but like free health clinics free shoe programs free ambulance service like do you think that was like a really important part of um what made them grow and what won them support absolutely you're you're absolutely correct and um those ideas were central from the start so when i spoke about malcolm x a little earlier the, the party had a 10-point program and platform that they took a lot of from malcolm x 
and they adapted it a bit. But he had this he had this nationalism coming out of the nation of Islam and then adapting it himself. Um, and and actually, the program that he wrote was when he was part of the Nation of Islam, and he took um, he took that program. It was it was very much the kind of positioning that you're talking about. The idea was is that the program called for the black community to take care of itself, mm. and the party adapted that into their ten point program and platform, basically as a statement of community need. You know, we, what we want, what we believe, it was a statement about education, about health, about housing, about food, about all of these basic social issues. And the, um, the idea was that um, the black community, because it was not taken care of by the empire, because it was not taken care of by America, um, the black community needed to take care of itself, and it was going to fight for those basic needs to be taken care of. And so that statement of those, of those basic needs is central from the early days of the party. And the idea is that the party stands as a as an organizational vehicle to address and to meet those needs. Um, so it's very much this idea from Malcolm X of the party taking care of the black community, the party being a vehicle for addressing the um, needs of the black community. And so, so that idea is central from the very start of the party and the formation of the party. Um, and it's connected to this anti-imperialist idea that those needs are not being met by the empire, that they need to be met by the Black Panther Party and the community itself. Um, what happens is that when the Mulford Act is passed, the legal patrols are prohibited, and the party continues to all of those confrontations, not all of them, but the vast majority of the confrontations, um, the armed confrontations with police that follow that period are driven by raids, the, um, their police basically raiding um, party offices, and the Panthers defending the their officers. Um, so that you have these armed confrontations that in some ways are very much provoked um, by the police. The Panthers think that they're going to defend those spaces. That dynamic is crucial. The dynamic of having sort of a disruption of the status quo is crucial, right? So you can't really understand the party as just being about providing services, right? There were lots of groups that were just providing services. Mm. The party very much is making business as usual by making customary policing impossible and continuing to do that. But but that's not at all the only thing that they do. And after after nineteen six really it's in nineteen sixty nine at the end of sixty eight, so we've missed an important space, but um I know we are uh, getting a lot of depth here, so um we may not have time to cover everything. Yeah. I and mean, I think what the um what happens is that the the social programs become really crucial in the politics of the party um, in a way that they weren't so much when it was on a smaller scale. When there was just a few friends, they didn't have really the capacity um, to follow through on those ideas about taking care of the needs of the black community. But as the party becomes really powerful and influential and also a target of a lot of um, repressive action by the state, 
a key piece becomes how do we bring in support? How do we bring in legal support? How do we bring in political support? How do we continue to grow community support? Um, and those programs both um, address the needs directly of the black community, and they also provide a way for people to participate, both members and also allies, in supporting the community and supporting the party. And so that they really become the main activity of the party in 1969. There's, you know, not that many people running around having confrontations with the police. There's not that many confrontations with police numerically. I mean, they're very high profile, mm. but um, the the main activities of the party are exactly the ones that you're talking about. Feeding breakfast to children, giving away free shoes, giving away free food, creating health clinics. These kinds of community activities become the bread and butter activities of the party. I think that's a really, when you, even you think about it, it's like a utopian movement as well i think that's one of the really inspiring things about it like it's a party that's set it's got like a vision like it's got like a, a revolutionary vision an anti-capitalist vision anti-racist vision it's got an idea of what it wants to do but it is also doing it like it's it's always actively involved in trying to realize its its vision i think that's a really inspiring thing about it obviously there's a as I said, we haven't got too much time so there's only so much we can go through but suffice to say that it's the, the, the party grows um it's a amazing how much it grows in, in a relatively short time really to the point of being like an international organization somewhere it has an embassy in Algeria uh, Huey Newton's inv invited to China it becomes um, J. Edgar Hoover of the FBI famously said that the Black Panther Party without question represents the greatest threat to the internal security of the country so that shows you how seriously the, the state was taking them as a as a revolutionary force I wanted to go on to, 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 uh, to talk kind of about how the party came to an end, but just briefly before we get on to that, could you just tell us about the position of women in the party? Because it seemed to be a kind of, uh, from reading your book, a contra contradictory one that had, did have a feminist dimension, but also there was, uh, seemed to be some problematic elements there as well. Well, nothing's ever neat. So yeah, it was very complex. And I think you know, women were part of the party from the beginning. Um, they were among the people to go to Sacramento. Um, women carried arms from the beginning, some women um, in the party. And they were the majority of the membership at times as well, right? Well, not in the very beginning. So in the very beginning, there were women, but it was there was some part of a masculinist project that very much framed these activities of standing up to the police with guns. But women were always part of it. What happened is, is in this shift to, uh, as the party grew, and the people who really did the work of the party day to day, and um, especially as the party started taking on this, you know, community aspect and breakfast for children as a central aspect, you know, women really became a significant majority of the party, you know, including in leadership positions, and really became, you know, the, the bulk of the party. And so, so this is also at a time when gender relationships, gender dynamics are being contested and questioned on many different fronts nationally. And so the party really goes through, you know, some pretty intense discussion and exploration of how to um, address and think about um, gender issues within the party and the broader society. Um, and the formal positions that the party and the party leadership take are all very, very progressive. Um, the party is the first significant black political organization, not just on gender, but to endorse gay rights. 
the party, you know, takes a very explicit pro-feminist position. Um, as I mentioned, there are a number of women um, in leadership roles. So sort of on paper, the party is far ahead of mainstream institutions in terms of its address of um, gender equality and um, gender relations, both in terms of its formal positions. I think the reality on the ground is, is complicated and, you know, misogyny is widespread and it was widespread in the society then. It is widespread in society today. And when you have, you know, crisis organization, intensely conflictual situation, a lot of those um, the gender dynamics don't go away and a lot of them become pretty intense. And, you know, there's all kinds of um, sexual abuse and power struggles and power imposition that, you know, don't just dissolve gender inequality and misogyny. So you see some of those dynamics. Um, you know, there were some chapters, for example, I've heard of that men, women would, you know, cook and the men would eat first. Now, when those things were exposed to the national leadership, there's stories about those kinds of practices being, you know, outlawed and disbanded and confronted, but um, but it didn't mean that they didn't go on. And so there's, you know, there's, um, and it makes it especially complicated that so much of the early politics were organized around that sort of masculine project of standing up to the police. Um, cool. Well, we've only got a couple of minutes left, really, so I don't think we, we've got time to go through the to the, the kind of close of the party. So, just to say, unsurprisingly, they were repressed fairly brutally, both both in very visible ways in terms of shootouts and bombings, which the police may or may or not have been involved with, as well as through um, deliberately causing um, uh, enhancing rifts between between various people. There, there are shootings in which police probably were involved uh, in trying to cause um, rifts in in the in the movement. Also, I think um, as you as you point out in the book, part of the reason they came to an end is because they they had a lot of success in many ways. But perhaps we have got, I've got time to touch on that. Very perhaps very briefly, if you could just tell, tell us if you think there's anything that movements today, anti-racist movements, movements like Black Lives Matter, could learn from the Black Panther Party. Yeah. Um, so those are great questions. So two last points. One is you're absolutely right. The party faced intense repression. One example of that was chairman of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, Fred Hampton, who was 21 years old, very charismatic, brought, created this rainbow coalition of interracial political organizing on the street, brought in gangs into politics, brought, really was uh, someone who Jesse Jackson followed and, you know, the bringing the idea of the rainbow coalition comes out of Fred Hampton. He was noted as just an exceptional organizer and they had thousands of kids being fed every day in the free breakfast programs and all kinds of social support and a very mobilized, very organized Black Panther Party in Chicago. And he was seen as such a threat that um, working with the FBI, the Chicago police simply raided his house and assassinated him, shot him in the head at point blank range. Mm. Um, and killed them to eliminate that, that source of organizing. And, you know, this is some, you know, this, this was settled um, in civil court uh, and there were congressional investigations and, um, you know, there was a cover up. But this is the kind of, um, this is the kind of program that the federal government, 
in coordination with local police, is bringing to repress the efforts of the Black Panther Party. What is striking is much like the civil rights movement in its heyday, the repression didn't work to demobilize. There was so much support because of the way that the party was able to build common cause beyond the, the reaches of the people who were actually participating with Black moderates, with anti-war folks, with international um, governments and, and liberation struggles. The party had so much support in the face of repression that the repression actually drove more people to um, to join the party and to support the party legally, financially, politically. And so it was an escalating cycle in its heyday, much like um, civil rights movement. Um, I think what we need to learn today from the Black Panther Party, I don't think we can apply any of the practices directly. I don't think any more than the sit-ins are going to help to address police brutality or the growing economic inequality or the kinds of um, racist and, and class programs and um, misogynist programs that, that Trump is advocating um, in the U.S., although I know they have a different set there. Um, I think that, you know, the conditions that we face today are very different. And so not only can we not fit in against Jim Crow, we also can't effectively campus today to transform the conditions that we face. What I think we can learn from most is the kind of question that they ask. And, you know, seldom is democracy really given and supported in a consistent way from above. Um, even democratic institutions over time, come to serve the people who have power within those organizations. Michelle said this long ago, and, you know, history has proven it over and over again. The powerful get more powerful because they use their power to change the rules, even in formal democracy. Hmm. And formal democracy doesn't actually deliver democracy. The reason that we have things like the weekend, the reason that we have some semblance of racial equality, the reason that we have some semblance of a breaking of a glass ceiling for women, the reason that we have some semblance of LGBTQ rights, the reason that we have um, some semblance of democracy is not because it was given from above, but because people fought for it and won it from below. And the question that the Panthers asked so well is given that the old forms of fighting for democracy don't work today, how do we find the forms that do? And they set out very intentionally to develop those practices to find those ways of disrupting business as usual and making business as usual impossible in the service of democracy and as a source of power for democracy. And they found ways of doing it which worked because they were hard to repress, because they did, in the context that they faced, draw broad support, and that made them hard to repress. And so those are, those are the kinds of questions that we need to ask. Um, if we want to stop release brutality today, if we want to fight for equality, we don't need to be fighting with the black bloc uh, going against the, um, the fascists. You know, the, 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 the local, um, so, you know, and, and I know your dynamics are a bit different, but here we have these little um, groups of um, racist fascists who are, you know, trying to assert, uh, again, an explicit white supremacy and fighting with them is only going to make them stronger. What we need the black bloc for is to defend us um, against the, the actual police. And we need to be finding ways of making business as usual impossible for the people who really have 
and we need to find ways and cultural technologies that when they come to repress us, that repression actually brings us more support. Okay. Um, well, thanks. There's, um, there's loads of stuff I wish we could have touched on, but it's a very big subject. So if people want to know more, I'd recommend they have a look at your book, Black Against Empire, which is a really, really fantastic, um, really fantastic book. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much for your time, Josh. Thank you. So that's the end of my conversation with Josh. I hope you've enjoyed it. As I mentioned in the intro, I thought it might be worth just touching briefly on a couple of couple of things we didn't get to talk about. Uh, I'm not going to go on for too long because if I tried to cover all the stuff that we didn't have time to touch on, then I could be here for ages talking about all sorts of things. So, But I just think because we didn't really talk about what happened with, with the end of the party, it might be worth um, touching on some of that. First of all, in terms of the, the repression of the party that we talked about, I mean, we talked about some of the more visible forms of, of repression, such as the de facto execution of Fred Hampton um, I thought it might be worth just kind of, in terms of kind of understanding the state response to the Panthers this is a quote from Jagger Hoover which is from the book sent to a FBI special agent he says one of our primary aims in counterintelligence as it concerns the Black Panther Party is to keep this group isolated from the moderate black and white community which may support it. This is most emphatically pointed out in their Breakfast for Children programme where they are actively soliciting and receiving support from uninformed whites and moderate blacks. You state that the Bureau under the counterintelligence programme should not attack programmes of community interest such as the Black Panther Party Breakfast for Children. You state this is because prominent humanitarians, both black and white, are interested in the programme, as well as churches which are actively supporting it. You've obviously missed the point. So that kind of tells you how the motives of the state and what they're prepared to press. Even feeding children is seen as a kind of insidious activity by them. And indeed, they would raid Breakfast for Children programmes while children were eating. So as well as the shootouts and suspected bombings that the police were involved in of Black Panther... Uh, headquarters that's kind of the thing they were doing but they were obviously also doing stuff like um infiltrating the party the as part of the assassination of fred hampton uh his bodyguard was actually working for the fbi so he drew a plan of the the flat which the police had before they went in and, and killed fred hampton there were also i think there are documents that detail the FBI approach and they were actively working to create um, create suspicion between between uh, prominent leaders enhancing disagreements so there was a, a another black power group wrote, written as like US but but said as us and they sent a letter from us that they said was from the um, Black Panther Party saying we know about this contract killing that you've got planned and we're gonna kill we're gonna kill your guys in, in retaliation basically never do the same thing to to the Black Panthers and uh, in many of these cases uh, the Black Panthers and um, other groups kind of saw what was happening and knew that was knew that this was coming from the police but there were also there were shootouts that happened there was the uh, us members who shot Black Panthers and there were hints and suggestions that the the state may have been involved in this um, and certainly were involved in causing and pushing this rift that may have actively actually been involved in in the shooting in some ways so yeah they were basically pursuing a policy of disinformation they were trying to encourage violence as, as much as possible to to separate more moderate support from from the black panther party in terms of what led to the party's demise um i certainly don't think that would have helped but i think it's important to point out that 
in some cases it was partly because of the Black Panther success. So just as we talked about the civil rights movement's tactics becoming ineffective because because they were successful, the Black Panthers were very successful in terms of organising protests to try and get black studies programmes um, introduced in universities and that happened in a lot of places. There was greater enrolment of black students. There were affirmative action programs. Uh, black people had greater access to public office and so on. So this, um, these successes tended to undercut support for the revolutionary kind of program that they had, particularly from more moderate allies, uh, more moderate black groups, white people. Also, the, the success of the anti-war and the, the draft resistance efforts was was important because again the as we mentioned the black panthers were very much involved in supporting anti-war movement they were allied with white liberals in in resisting the draft and organizing draft um, resistance when the war started to wind down and, and the draft started to reduce liberals whose children suddenly weren't a threat of being drafted and killed suddenly surprisingly weren't so supportive of the black panthers so that has an effect on on their support the, the kind of international support they had revolutionary governments so places like algeria where they did have an embassy places like china who had supported them they stopped supporting the uh, black panthers as the U.S. government, they, they began resuming relationships with, with the U.S. government, so they broke off relations that Algeria closed that embassy. There were also problems with factional infighting towards the end, um, particularly, I think, <clears throat> between Huey Newton, who, so we did mention he spent a rather significant amount of time in prison. Uh, he, uh, shooting after shooting a police officer, which he says uh, was in self-defence, um, looking into the background of this police officer, he did seem to be a rather unsavory individual and certainly a racist so there probably is some truth to that and the free human newton campaign is something that we could talk about but i'm not going to go into that but that that was a big source of support for them but anyway human newton did have some mental health problems and drug problems towards uh, later on towards the the end of the party's days and he had disagreements with eldritch cleaver who had gone to live in in exile and those two factions were struggling for power, which which again didn't help. So the combination of these things, repression, the success of the party, the withdrawal of support from, from moderate allies, factional infighting, led to the party kind of disintegrating almost as, as quickly as it had risen. And um, I think though it went on until 1982, it was effectively over sometime before that. Um, so yeah, that's just to give a, a bit more detail of stuff that I've gleaned from from reading reading the book um, Black Against Empire. Again, there are many many other things we didn't get to talk about, and loads more interesting details. So if you're if you're interested in that, then yeah, I'd, I'd recommend having a look at that book. As always, if you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe. And I will say one more time that if you could take a moment to give me a rating review on iTunes, uh, that would be a big help in terms of getting the podcast out there and helping it to grow. Sorry about my cold if that's affected my voice too much. Um, so the next episode will be on Time Out of Joint. And as I said, if you've got any comments or questions or on that book, then feel free to send them to me and I'll try and address them when I record it. So until then, thanks for listening. Thank you.